Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's podcast, you're in my house. We're broadcasting from home. And COVID-19 from every single angle, from the aid you're getting from government to governments and politics being played in the middle of all of this. Right the way to cleaning your home. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We're getting more and more information in as uh, we hear of uh, approximately 100 new cases uh, today, uh, 688 active cases uh, in Ontario at this point. Half of the cases in Canada right now, they say, can be attributed to community spread. This is picking it up from each other as opposed to flying somewhere and some sort of international destination. Uh, with the pandemic growing, how is this going to impact hospitals and spreads across major cities like Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, and such? Let's bring in Dion Aylman, Associate Professor, Department of Mechanical and Industrial Engineering, Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering Director. Medical Operations Research Lab at University of Toronto and with us now. Dion, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've certainly seen uh, uh, different results and in different ways in which different cities have handled uh, this COVID-19 outbreak. Italy and Taiwan's first cases came only a few days, 10 days, I guess, apart. Yet Italy now has uh, the highest numbers in the world. Taiwan, just over 200 cases and a couple of deaths. Why do you think such a spread? Why, why such a, a drastic spread in Italy? Could they have done something differently? Uh, what are your thoughts on the differences here? Uh, yes, absolutely. Italy could have done a lot of things differently. And, and in fact, I'm sure most countries will look back on this COVID-19 experience and, and think about all the things that they could have done differently and all the measures that could have been enacted earlier in order to uh, mitigate the, uh, the impact of this pandemic on our uh, citizens. Um, Taiwan in particular has done um, a really excellent job of um, identifying individuals that are likely to have been exposed to COVID-19 by linking their um, travel um, records and uh, immigration status uh, coming and going through the country, uh, where countries they've been to, to their medical health records, and identifying people as they arrive into the country uh, who should be quarantined um, just to make sure that they don't have COVID-19. Or if they do, well, they're, they're in quarantine so, uh, so they can um, be managed appropriately. And they've leveraged a lot of um, um, just data uh, by, again, linking health records to travel records, but also they've been using people's uh, cell phones to triangulate where they are and ensure that people are actually adhering to the quarantines that, uh, that they've been mandated to follow. Wow, uh, that's, so that's fascinating. Technology, yeah. Um, so what do you think of how... What do you think of how... On the privacy sense, but it certainly is appropriate here. So how, what do you think of how Taiwan has handled this situation? And again, maybe go into a little bit more greater detail of the personal privacy that perhaps was given up here. They're basically following you on your phone, correct? Uh, that's correct. And uh, this is, um, uh, from what I've read, um, a capability that Taiwan has had for some time, although they mainly use it uh, in the uh, criminal justice uh, area for enforcing, um, you know, stay-at-home um, orders or house arrests. Uh, but they've expanded it to uh, to apply to quarantines, and you know, from from a public health perspective, it's 
fantastic because as we've seen here in Canada, um, that you, know, you can ask people to stay home, but a sizable minority of people will not really obey that and will still go to uh, parks and congregate or uh, restaurants if they're still open um, and not obey that social distancing uh, measures, even if they are at an increased risk of having the disease or having something uh, or having a very bad reaction to the di- to the disease that they get it. Whereas Taiwan has put this enforcement in place, and they'll call you uh, in Taiwan multiple times a day to make sure that you are in fact with your phone, that you didn't just leave mm. your phone at home and uh, go out on your own. And if your phone wow. dies, they actually um, will send police to your house um, to make sure that you are still there and uh, you're okay. Um, and um, from a public health perspective, really, this is an excellent approach. Um, but it's not excellent. Uh, in all regards, because then you certainly have to wonder about how this system might be uh, used or abused um, in the future mm. uh, with regards to people's privacy. Might they you know, use this to track people who are, say, political distance or something else? Um, those are certainly important questions to ask. Um, but if the government um, can be trusted to use these sorts of tools in only a, a benign fashion that actually helps the population, uh, then I think that these tools are incredibly effective. Uh, obviously, they're working. We've seen the results of that. How do you think this would fly in Canada? Do you think Canadians would like uh, being told by their phone and government what to do? How do you think this would fly here? Uh, I don't think it would fly at all. <laughs> um, you know, people. I think most people know that they should stay home, um, but uh, it's one thing being asked to stay home. Uh, it's another thing being mandated, mandated to stay home. And if police you know, see you out and about, they might stop and ask you where you're going. And it's another thing for the government to literally be tracking your physical location. Um, I think a lot of people would be quite uncomfortable with that. And I myself, um, despite um, my, my praise of such a system for use in um, pandemic control, uh, would not be comfortable with my own phone uh, being tracked because, again, it starts to become a slippery slope of can you always trust this government and future governments to to use that information with only the good of the population at heart and and I think right now um, probably a lot of us would not feel comfortable um, in most countries with the government really actually using that that information always and exclusively for the benefit of individual citizens. A lot of the same questions we're asking ourselves in regard to letting Huawei run the 5G network in North America. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, do you think this information should be shared from country to country? I guess if, if a host country isn't doing it, then they're not going to share the information. But, boy, you could certainly see the advantage if it was shared country to country. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that this information, and really a lot of uh, medical and health information, is not governed by borders, right? People move from border to border. I mean, a border is really just an abstract concept, and uh, and it shouldn't define how we approach medical situations, how we approach public health situations, um, especially with something as global as a pandemic and as fast-moving as this pan- pandemic is in particular. Uh, what we need more than anything is is data and information, as detailed information as we can get about how this disease is moving from one individual to another? Um, Are certain groups more susceptible to catching the disease? Um, Can we drill down and and identify higher risk groups for who might have severe uh, reactions to being infected with the disease? Like, yes, we know people who are elderly 
uh, have a higher fatality rate, but what about people who might end up being on a ventilator? Um, is it just the elderly that are at an elevated rate, or is it some combination of uh, comorbidities that the patient might have? Uh, for example, we're seeing that um, having asthma and diabetes um, can lead a person to have a much stronger, um, poor reaction to uh, to being exposed to COVID-19. You know, how can we really drill down into this data and better understand what is happening and therefore better devise um, mitigation strategies and social distancing strategies, as well as healthcare interventions um, that can best help people, especially in a situation where we have limited resources like limited ventilators, limited ICU beds, limited doctors and nurses, really limited everything. All right, our, our healthcare system has been um, continually asked to run as lean as possible on the smallest budget possible, uh, which then means we don't have a lot of extra capacity when something major uh, like this event happens. Uh, how will we know in Canada whether what we're doing is working or not? How, how concerned are you about the coming days and weeks? When do we know if our social distancing is effective? And, and you know, if, if it goes sideways, if we see sharp increases, uh, will we see people's attitudes about what they're doing in Taiwan change? Well, in terms of uh, when will we know if what we're doing right now is effective, uh, it'll take at least two to three weeks before um, before we see any changes in the curve, assuming the changes in the curve, uh, the, that curve of uh, number of infections changes. And that's just because the infections that we're seeing right now are people who were exposed um, prior to, uh, to the social distancing measures and are just now starting to become symptomatic and starting to be measured and get tested. And, uh, and we find out that they do, in fact, have COVID-19. So I'd say it would be another probably week or two before we can uh, start to see the effects of social distancing. And then we'll probably, you know, need really like another week or two beyond that to make sure that reductions in um, the number of new cases is actually decreasing. And it's not just a, a random fluctuation. Uh, but if things do still continue to grow and seem like they're growing exponentially, like sort of out of control, uh, as it seems right now, then yes, I, I really hope that people will start to um, pay a lot more attention to the government's um, so far um, polite requests to to stay at home and, and that maybe we might start to see some more um, mandated um, stay-at-home orders that are enforced by by police with with some sort of penalty in order to make sure people are are really doing their best uh, to stay at home unless they absolutely essentially need to leave their houses. Whether or not we would ever get uh, to a situation where the population would agree to have their cell phones tracked, um, I mean, I'm sure that at some point there there would be that 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 tipping point. But um, I certainly hope that um, we don't end up in a situation with COVID-19 where the spread is so severe that. Uh, that that sort of measure uh, would be widely accepted by the population just because it would really take a, a very severe, um, uh, I guess, rate of deaths, uh, I think, before people would be willing to, to give that up, give up their personal privacy. Uh, we, we've certainly seen how various countries have handled this, some good, some some bad, frankly, and, and, and the results of actions or lack of action. Uh, you, you, we talked about Taiwan and how they are using personal devices in order to keep track of people's movement, where they've gone, where they're going, where they've been. We certainly know of uh, of the mass quarantines that China uh, has used in order to to flatten their curve, so to speak. Uh, but what 
can we take from there, from from these countries, and learn within a Canadian system? What is the balance for Canada here? What should we be emulating? Well, I'm not I'm not necessarily sure that um, that we should be exactly trying to emulate um, Taiwan's um, cell phone surveillance approach or China's um, literally bored people in their houses approach. But what we should take from that is that those measures were effective. Um, they were very effective in Taiwan. Of course, in China, the disease had already really taken hold and started to spread a lot before those measures went into place, which is why their their um, pandemic curves were, were so sharp. But ultimately, those measures were effective. Now, if we as Canadians can just uh, accept that um, staying at home is effective and really is the single most effective way of mitigating the spread of disease. And if we can all just choose to stay home and uh, choose to only leave our houses when it's really essential, um, then I think that we'll be in a good place as far as managing this pandemic. But people have to understand that you know they need to make these sacrifices. They need to not be getting together with their friends to have parties in their houses. They need to not be gathering in the parks or treating this like an extended snow day because that's not what it is. Uh, we really need to uh, have that physical distance from one another, as we've seen in other countries, it's effective. And if we can all do that voluntarily, then we don't have to resort to more draconian enforcement measures. We're certainly getting lots of uh, email and text messages here uh, from people who are out on the front lines and concerned about their own health uh, and spreading this. Uh, any idea what should what should workers do uh, if coworkers or their employers are are ignoring these rules, these self isolation rules? We've certainly been given anecdotal examples of of situations where this has been going on and, and these workers are fearful. What do you do if your coworkers or employer are, are ignoring these rules? Well, that's a tough situation because a lot of people are really dependent on their, their jobs and the income that they get from their jobs just to have food to feed their families and uh, money to, to have a roof over their head. And it's not really clear yet in um, Ontario, at least, whether um, there's going to be any significant relief that's provided in terms of rent or mortgage payments. Um, I know um, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, has announced um, a, a wide range of uh, sweeping um, economic um, support packages uh, to help people get through these times, um, but it's not yet clear how soon that money will come through. So people who are really dependent on you know paycheck to paycheck um, to keep their lives going, it's hard to just say no to your employer. If your employer is asking you to engage in unsafe activities, it's hard to just say no because you risk being fired. And uh, that is is a huge risk uh, for people's livelihoods. And a lot of people might say that that risk is far larger to them than the risk of catching COVID-19. And they may or may not be correct. Um, but ultimately, you know, we've seen that even young people uh, who catch COVID-19 um, are ending up in ICUs. Um, they are ending up on ventilators. Some are even dying. So you have to ask yourself, is it worth it to try to maintain this particular job and this income stream um, in comparison with um, a percentage chance that, you know, you might literally die if you keep working uh, as, your, as your employer is asking you to because you might catch COVID-19 from someone else at your workplace. And it's really a very delicate balancing act. And, and it's a really hard choice that, frankly, people shouldn't have to make that choice. Uh, they shouldn't have to choose between their health in a public health crisis 
and, uh, and their job. So if we want people to stay at home, if we want people to be safe, we have to make it possible for them to do so. We have to provide the incentives and uh, the financial security that people need to be able to stay away from unsafe um, jobs at this particular point in time. Uh, obviously, uh, you know where we are, you've seen where we are, and where other countries around us are, and those in other parts of the world. What is your greatest concern as we move forward with this? Uh, another 100 new cases in Ontario. Obviously, we haven't hit the peak yet, and, and many have predicted this will go up rapidly before we see it level out. We're not at the worst yet. What is your greatest concern as we move forward with this? Well, I, I think... Uh, here in Canada and in Ontario, um, I think we've done a reasonable job of putting mitigation measures into place, asking people to stay home, closing down non-essential businesses, closing down schools and universities. And people are mostly uh, obeying the, uh, the request to stay home. So I do feel confident that, um, that we will be lessening the peak. Now, how, how flat we can, uh, we can you know, get that peak, like can we turn that big peak into a nice flat plateau? Um, that remains to be seen. I would say my biggest fear is that as soon as we start to see a flattening of the curve, that uh, the restrictions get lifted and then uh, they're lifted too soon. People are still um, infected and maybe don't realize it yet because they're asymptomatic or they just have mild symptoms that seems like a cold. And then the disease just takes off again and uh, all of our uh, previous attempts at social distancing were uh, for naught. And we have to go back to doing it all over again. But even more stringently. So I'd say my greatest fear is, uh, is uh, I guess, uh, taking our foot off the gas of social distancing too soon. Until we get to the point where we can test everyone, will this not have to continue? I mean, because, again, we're isolating everybody because we don't know who's infected, who isn't. Once we get tests for everybody, will this not be easier? Is that the answer here? Well, certainly if we could get tests for everybody, that would make things uh, really uh, almost transparently easy to manage. If we get everybody tested, we know who's infected, regardless of what symptoms they might be showing or, or contact history or their travel patterns. And then we can isolate and treat those individuals and uh, prevent the disease from spreading from that those individuals any further. Uh, but it you know, we're short on tests, um, on testing kits, and uh, it's not clear how long it's going to take for us to get more kits. And then there, beco- then there becomes the logistics problem of actually getting everybody uh, tested. Um, you know, there are lots of, um, you know, uh, drive-through uh, testing centers um, across the world that have been created in, in large cities. And uh, we could certainly do something like that here. Although, of course, um, uh, I'm in Toronto. Um, you know, in Toronto, uh, especially downtown, a lot of people don't have a car in the first place. So getting all of them tested in a way that uh, keeps them socially distant from everyone else who's getting tested you know, based on not being protected by your car uh, will be a logistical challenge. But if we could do that, then that would really help us stem the tide of COVID-19. Gian Elman has been with us, Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering, Director, Medical Operations Research Lab, University of Toronto. Dion, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Stay safe out there.
Thank you. You too. Many, many emails into the radio station in regard to small businesses, those that are in small retail, and and certainly feeling the pinch of all of this. Let's bring in uh, Ryan Mallow, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario's Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and is with us now. Ryan, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So what are you hearing from small business, Ryan? What are their challenges and their concerns right now? Uh, we're hearing it's, it's been incredibly difficult out there. Uh, a third of them are in a position where they're looking at about a two-week window before they're going to have to shut down. Uh, 25% of our membership has said they've already laid off all staff. Um, it's incredibly difficult, and we are looking to uh, the provincial governments and the federal governments, even the municipal governments, uh, for any kind of support that helps keep employees on payroll uh, and keep these small businesses open, because right now uh, things are looking pretty grim. We are certainly hearing that aid is on the way provincially, federally. Is any of this making its way through yet? Is small business feeling any of the help yet? So right now, not really. There have been some positive measures in a couple of municipalities. We've seen, you know, deferring property taxes was a positive move uh, from the city of Toronto. We saw uh, Premier Ford announce yesterday in Ontario that we're moving to off-peak electricity pricing uh, for, for all times of day now. That's that's going to be positive for the people who are still open. Certainly great if you're working from home. Um, but quite frankly, these, these measures are coming late, and the, the emergency recalls of legislatures uh, take time. And even when things pass, you're still looking at, you know, early to mid-April before anything starts really coming through. Um, and the message that we have is, is we don't have the time for that. Um, they, they, you know, they need help now. 10% wage subsidy announced by the federal government. Great. Step in the right direction. Is 10% going to be make or break for an employer deciding to lay off an employee? Absolutely not. Denmark, 75%. Ireland, 70%. Britain, 80%. That's the kind of coverage and help that we need here, and we're just not seeing it. Uh, uh, going to see a fiscal update from the province coming up a little later on. Any encouragement there? So, I mean, we're, we're hoping that the, the uh, finance minister has some, some positive news when he uh, gets up at about 4 p.m. Uh, we're looking for things like uh, deferring tax remittances, certainly the employer health tax and uh, workers' compensation premiums. That would be helpful, keeping money in the business. The real big one would be HST. If we can delay HST remittances, there have been a lot of businesses asking for that. That bill is due. Anything on rent, commercial rent, because, again, April 1st is coming up. The next payments are still due. Um, and then, of course, the big one from the province would be stepping up and, uh, you know, filling some of that federal gap on the wage subsidy. And uh, what about advice for small business? What what can your organization offer them as far as advice on how to weather their, their way through this? So right now, uh, our call volume is at about 10 times what it normally is. Um, so we are certainly hearing from small business owners, which, I mean, is is fantastic. It's great that they're reaching out. It's devastating to hear some of their stories. Um, you know, we can offer help in navigating the, the uh, Business Development Bank of Canada loan process, uh, how all these programs work. Uh, we've got a lot of questions uh, regarding uh, how to go through the EI process, getting records of employment. We can certainly help uh, with that sort of thing there. But the the biggest thing we're doing is we are, you know, we are trying to be that biggest voice for small business. We are trying to make sure that the federal government, the provincial government, your municipal governments hear loud and clear what it is small business owners need to weather this. And uh, the, the, the answer, again, loud and clear is direct help and immediate help. Is that message being heard, do you feel? 
I sincerely hope so. Uh, I, I know on the, the provincial level that, you know, we're, we're certainly being heard. We'll see in the minister's statement uh, this afternoon what comes out of it. I know Premier Ford has indicated that there may be more help down the road. Although, again, I, I really need to underscore timing is critical here. The sooner the better. Uh, it was certainly encouraging to hear uh, Prime Minister Trudeau say today that, you know, his government is looking at what's happening in countries like Denmark, countries like Germany. Um, so it's, it's great that they're looking. But again, we need we need the decision to be made now. Uh, we need to make sure that cash uh, starts flowing as soon as possible. And what about the average Canadian, the average person? How can we help? Because, again, I'm not sure many realize just how many are employed, how much business is done through our small and medium-sized businesses. What can the average citizen do? Yeah, in Ontario alone, small and medium-sized businesses employ about 88% of the private workforce. So it, it, is, it is a huge part of our economy. Um, and, and again, everyone should be listening to their health officials. You should be practicing social distancing. You should be uh, you know, uh, self-isolating as, as much as possible. But that being said, if you're able to uh, you know, use your local independent grocer, your local uh, butcher shop if they're still open for, for your groceries, if you can uh, afford to purchase a gift card at this point, or uh, a lot of retailers are continuing to go through online, any sort of help like that um, would be absolutely wonderful for a small business right now. Um, we're seeing you know, revenue drops uh, as high as 75% almost across the board. Um, so they really could use uh, any help that you're able to give. And keep in mind, too, that when we are through this, um, small businesses are often sort of the, the heart and soul of a neighborhood. It's hard to think of a neighborhood across the province or across the country that you don't define by the small businesses that are present. And, you know, we really do warn that uh, if we don't see some help soon, they may not be there uh, by the time we're ready to get back and going. And not only is that going to be devastating for a community, but it's also going to mean that uh, getting through this and getting the economy up and running again is going to take much longer than it otherwise would have. Ryan Mallow has been with us, Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. A reminder to all that uh, the small businesses are really suffering and employ a large number of Canadians. So help in any way that you can. Ryan, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks for having me. You as well. Stay safe. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. News has surfaced today. Prince Charles has been diagnosed with the COVID-19 virus. Uh, to talk more about all of this, let's bring in Crystal Gamansing, Europe Bureau Chief Global News, and she is with us now. Crystal, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, Crystal, do we know exactly where or how the prince uh, may have been infected? Uh, we certainly know that uh, Sophie Trudeau was over there. Uh, anything, any relation to the gathering they were at? No, it's it's not known uh, when or how he was infected. Uh, we have a statement from Clarence House just saying that he is displaying mild symptoms but otherwise remains in good health and has been working from home. We know that he is in isolation up in Scotland. Um, his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall, Camilla, uh, has tested negative. Uh, but, of course, with the um, rules around isolation, when someone ha- does test positive, they will, they will be tucked away and, and not interact with anyone for some time. We do know that um, Prince Charles was also um, dealing with another prince, the Prince of Monaco, not too long ago, who also tested positive. The one royal expert that uh, I just chatted with said, you know, we don't know if it was maybe a case of one prince giving it to another, but royals obviously um, 
very uh, public. They shake a lot of hands. They go to many, many events. So they really, um, and anyone could have could have infected uh, Prince Charles. What about uh, how concerned in uh, tracing back his steps and who he's been in contact with with the last little while? Uh, what is that window we're looking at there? Well, we know he has been in contact with the Queen, and that is obviously a huge concern. She will turn uh, 94 later in April. So uh, concern there, but we are told that um, she is doing well, that um, you know she and Prince Philip are, are in isolation now, that um, they are at uh, Windsor Castle, and they are also safe, and we're told that they are healthy. Um, and so there's also uh, you know just a few people helping them. They're trying to limit experience. Exposure. Um, again, another expert said that, you know, probably she was given advice earlier on um, to, to isolate, but it could be that, um, you know, chin up and, and carry on kind of spirit where she may have pushed back a little bit and, and not wanted to go into isolation. But at this point, it appears that only Prince Charles is affected. But then again, there's also everyone wanted to know about his overall health, right? Because he is in that older age group. And we do see some of the more mm-hmm. severe symptoms in, the, in that age category. But he is incredibly fit um, and seems to, be, seems to be handling his symptoms well. Again, mild symptoms. Do we know if the Queen's been tested? Uh, that is a very good question. So we haven't been told flat out that she has been tested and tested uh, negative. We are told that she is in good health. Um, there, there was a, um, a Phil Dampier, who is a royal expert that I was uh, just chatting with, said um, he expects that she was in fact tested, that there was some talk about a week ago uh, that a member of, of the House uh, did test positive. There's been some debate as to um, how close of contact that staff member had with the Queen. Uh, so his best guess is that she has been tested. Uh, all we are hearing from Buckingham Palace is that she is healthy and doing well. And how is the UK reacting to this? How is the uh, the citizenry reacting to this news that Prince Charles has it? You know, it is really interesting because it, 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 the news broke and sort of it was just all over the place. But uh, it kind of just shows that anyone can be infected. And there's so much news. There are so many developments. There's There are stories about, you know, people who have, um, you know, gig economy meetings, but more than 100 was put out yesterday to help individuals from the vulnerable community. There's the ongoing work on the new hospital. A massive convention center in London is being transformed so that it can have 4,000 beds. So really, this is just sort of one of the storylines in, in a number of stories that are playing out in the UK because of, of the pandemic. And, and this is um, a region that's under a lockdown, right? It recently went into a lockdown Monday night. Um, so people are not allowed to be out. They're not allowed to be interacting. Uh, obviously, Prince Charles in... Obviously, Prince Charles in line for the throne, Prince William after that. Uh, Any word on his health, on his condition, and how does this change protocol in any way? It doesn't really change protocol at all. Everyone is said to be healthy and in good spirits. So at this point, um, you know, they did share the news that, that yes, he tested positive, but it was um, a mild symptoms that he was displaying, and that's why he was tested up in Aberdeen. And at this point, all of the other royals, appear to be doing well. 
All right, Crystal Gamansing has been with us, Europe Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this. Prince Charles has been diagnosed with COVID-19 and is doing fine. Crystal, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay safe. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. One of the interesting side conversations is how do you talk to your kids about this sort of thing? I got two in the house right now, uh, 13 and and 17-year-old. And, uh, you know, it, it can get a little antsy. And it has come to the point where we have had to actually discipline time to go out and take the dog for a walk. And so much time, uh, my, my 17-year-old is still working her way through grade 12 and, oddly enough, is taking an online course. Uh, so she's pretty much, uh, you know, uh, scheduled to continue on the way she is. Uh, but again, uh, the other uh, kind of not knowing what to do and, and you've really got to monitor, uh, how much exposure you give the kids to this, keep them aware, keep them, uh, doing the right thing and, and washing their hands and self-isolating and stuff. But you know, when you live in a house like ours, sometimes the news channel stays on all day and that's not necessarily a great thing for the kids. Uh, an online study from Brock university is going to examine how parents are talking to their kids about COVID-19 to talk more about all of this, Angela. Evans is with us, Associate Professor, Brock's Department of Psychology, Brock University, and with us now. Angela, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this. What are you looking for? What's your objective here? Um, Well, this is unprecedented times. We've uh, never had anything like this that we've been dealing with recently. So we're really interested in how parents and children are talking about this, what they're thinking about, and how they're feeling about this situation. And we are planning on following these families who are completing our survey over time so we can see how children are handling this and children's adjustment uh, to this new, new normal right now. What sort of questions are you asking parents? So um, kind of as you were opening there, you were talking about how you were talking to your 13 and 17 year old about this. And we want to know how much information parents are giving children. So what are they talking about? Are they telling them about hand washing? Are they telling them about keeping away from their friends? Why they're being kept away from their friends? Why the school is being closed? Um, and uh, and uh, why or why not are they telling them different amounts of information? What do you think the long-term effect is going to have on kids? Well, there are there is other research about how these um, unusual historical events do impact children in terms of their well-being and how parents support children through this can really play an important role. So we can think about um, other types of un- unseen events that children experience, whether it be weather events or whether it be um, acts of terrorism that have happened in the past. These types of events are things that kids can't necessarily always see or understand. So how parents talk about it and what they expose their children to can have long-term impacts on children. Uh, obviously, we're telling the kids that it's low risk as long as you participate in everything that the government is telling you and, the, and medical officials are telling you to do. But how do you balance the low risk with the fact that every so often a report comes on about someone who's passed away from this? 
Yeah, well, I think it's also interesting because in your house at Hold, you're probably talking about it being risk, and I think it's low risk, and I think it varies from household to household. So some parents where it doesn't feel so low risk might be talking to their children about it being high risk and extremely serious. And I think balancing the amount of information we give our children based on their age um, and their ability to process that information is extremely important. And while some areas it is low risk, in other areas, of countries, it is higher risk. So we're looking both at Canada and the U.S. and looking at um, demographic information as well as information about differences within each household, so whether parents have lost their jobs or not and factors like that as well. Uh, I remember at the beginning of this exercise, it was a little difficult and, um, you know, you basically had to read the Riot Act. <laughs> no, you can't do this, unfortunately. Um, and, but, but we slowly eased into that. So, I mean, you know, at one time they were kind of hanging out, but then all of a sudden it was, no, you can't be doing that anymore. And, and we've got to where we are. Um, how do you ramp up the seriousness, ramp up the process, the protocol and try to keep it calm? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we're really hoping after we've had some uh, families complete several of these surveys that we'll have more insight in terms of what's beneficial for children. But I think at this time, slowly providing information to children, of course, is, is the best bet, but also we need them to act quickly. We need them to stop the play dates. We need them to um, stop interacting with the neighbors next door or whoever they might want to play with. Stop playing on the playgrounds. And so explaining to them about germs and stuff like that can be extremely helpful for children as well. Uh, what about parents' behavior in all of this? Obviously, kids get a lot of the cue from mom and dad. So what should we be doing here? Yeah, so I think there's uh, lots of different things that parents can do and parents are going to react differently based on their own kind of processing of the information, um, you know, whether or not parents want to make decisions about what children are going to access in terms of the internet. Are they going to allow their child to watch the news or the television? Um, they might decide that it's best for their children to not have access to news um, uh, to avoid kind of exposing them to the extremeness that we often see on the news as well, uh, as one way parents can protect their kids. How important is it to, when we're in this mode of self-isolation, to try to uh, create some sort of some sort of normalcy or some sort of schedule, some sort of routine, routine, even though there's nothing routine about this. That is one thing that we are interested in looking at in terms of um, whether or not parents are changing their routine or staying with their routine. And so it's something we'd like parents to report on in the survey. And then we'd like to look at how that influences children across time and whether or not that's impacting child well-being. Absolutely. Uh, I, I heard it into I saw an interesting headline on this and, and I'm sure I'm going to screw it up I'll paraphrase it but it's something along the lines of uh, this is the first crisis of the privileged generation uh, you know we haven't necessarily lived through we've lived through 9-11 we've lived through terrorism uh, but certainly not world wars uh, depressions in the sense that our parents or grandparents uh, may have been through. How is it different for kids who haven't experienced anything like this? They've had a pretty reasonably consistent life. 
Yeah, absolutely. This has definitely been a conversation in our household in terms of how we're reacting and how our kids are processing this because they haven't had any of these types of restrictions on them before. Um, So it is a whole new way to process things. Um, One thing we are hoping is that at the end of this, when we can all start socially interacting again one day, um, that we'll be able to bring kids into our research labs at Brock University as well as Ontario Tech University, where my collaborator on this project, Lindsay Malloy, um, is located, and talk to kids about what they remember about this time. So do they remember it being a fun time at home where they got to spend so much more time with mom and dad and do all kinds of fun activities? Um, Or is it something that they remember as a frightening time? And I think it will be really interesting to see um, how children actually conceptualize Mm. this. And obviously that will change with age. So we're interested in looking at uh, children right from five years of age all the way through uh, 17 years of age in terms of how they're going to remember this down the line. You know, and it's interesting you say uh, some may look at it negatively, some may look at it positively, and I guess that depends on the the situation within each and every household and how much it affects them. But, you know, we, we often talk about how our lives are so complicated, how our lives are so structured, how our lives are so immediate, and we have to do this, we have to do this. There always seems to be a long list of things to do on any given day. This has changed all of that. That's There's something good in there, is there not? Absolutely. We've been feeling that in our household as well, is is this lack of rushing to have to go to all the activities and get out the door to get on the bus in the morning to school. And so I think there is a natural slowing down that's happening in everyone's lives. And while it's still chaotic while you're trying to balance work and children at the same time, Mm. um, there is some shift in terms of that quality interaction that is happening, I think. You should ask if they're eating more. (laughs) <laughs> I think that's a very relevant question. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? Uh, so if people want to participate in this, uh, how do we get involved? Um, so we have a study link posted on our Growing with Brock Facebook page. So if you just search Growing with Brock um, and find our first Facebook page, it's pinned at the very top of the Facebook page. Um, participants, when they complete the survey, it takes about 30 minutes. And they'll be entered into a draw for a $100 gift card to Amazon. Um, And then we'll be sending follow-up surveys to families. There's four follow-up surveys, and we'll be paying uh, $5 Amazon gift cards for each of those follow-up surveys that participants complete. And how long are you going to be studying this? Because you you said you're going to follow people afterwards. Yeah. So um, that's a good point. So we have three days left for people to join this study. So you have three days to complete that first questionnaire. And then we'll be sending three uh, weekly questionnaires following up and then one questionnaire that will occur six months later. And then eventually we do hope to get the kids back into the lab um, after that, maybe one year out from now. Hmm. Angela Evans has been with us, Associate Professor in Brock, uh, Brock's Department of Psychology, Brock University. An online study from Brock University is going to examine how parents are talking to their kids during this time of COVID-19. Angela, thanks so much for the time. Can't wait to see the results. Good luck with this. Great. Thank you very much. And thank you. COVID-19, we know very little about it. How long it lasts on surfaces? How do you clean for this sort of thing? Let's bring in Dr. Lucas uh, Pentalion, uh, Ogina Solutions, and is with us now. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. 
what do we know about this virus as far as cleaning up from it or or how long it lasts on surfaces? Do we have answers to these questions yet? Uh, yes, we do have some answers. You know, the good thing is that coronavirus in itself is not a virus that uh, normally can live on surfaces for very long, but it can live on surfaces for long enough for us to be able to transfer from one surface to another or long enough for people to pick it up from surfaces if they are not careful. Uh, There's been a study uh, last week from the New New England Journal of Medicine that showed, at least preliminarily, that, for example, plastic and steel, this virus could be found up to three days post-inoculation. What we don't know if it's the dose of that virus on those surfaces at day three are still large enough to infect, but is enough to raise some concern and make sure that we are aware that the virus can survive on surfaces. How do we clean for such a surface? Because, you know, I'm even thinking, uh, you you know, we went out uh, uh, four or five days ago and went to the grocery store. But then I'm thinking, you know, you drive home, you're touching your steering wheel, uh, your shifter knob, what have you, the doorknob as you come into the house. How do you clean for this? Yeah, well, there might be two parts of that. One one part is to wash your hands because you can be... uh, a vector for that. So if you touch a surface that potentially is contaminated, washing your hands will prevent for you to transfer that pathogen to you or other surfaces. With respect to surfaces itself, it is important to do what we call a two-step process. So have a good uh, cleaning step of that surface with either a wipe or some uh, soap and water, allow that surface to dry, and then use a disinfectant, either wipe or spray disinfectant. When you use disinfectant, yeah, go ahead, Scott. No, you go ahead, go ahead. I was going to mention the fact that when you use disinfectants, it is important to make sure to read the label and follow label instructions. Because and will any sort of household, yeah, so it's got to be strong yeah. enough, you've got to make sure, sure you have enough. Uh, any kind of household disinfectant work for this, like something we can get at our, our local grocery stores, that's all sufficient? Uh, there are some that they do work for that, so I would recommend to read the label and make sure they have uh, coronavirus on the label. But in general, since this is a fairly weak um, pathogen, most disinfectants will work as long as you follow the label instructions, which is normally you have to pre-clean the surface, get rid of all the dirt or organic material on the surface, and then follow with the disinfectant and make sure that those surfaces remain wet for the contact time that those disinfectants are required to mm. for it to disinfect. And what should we be doing as regular cleaning around our house now that we're stuck here? <laughs> well, 
you should uh, try to keep high touch surfaces especially clean and high touch surfaces will be for example doorknobs for example your cell phones uh, computer keyboards those type of surfaces that are touched by multiple t people multiple times a day so those surfaces should be clean kept clean and disinfect uh, several times a day all right so uh cleaning always is the solution and uh basic soap and water helps and then a disinfectant after that dr lucas pentelion has been with us ogena solutions doctor thanks so much for the time and insight much appreciated stay safe thank you for your time you'll be safe too thank you you're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in uh, Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies, Abacus Data. He is with us now. Uh, federal government has reached unanimous support in their emergency measures bill. Uh, wasn't a smooth ride. Opposition parties uh, having concerns over uh, unchallenged power, uh, the ability to raise taxes and, and such without parliamentary approval, and then the duration of this going for 21 months till uh almost two years to uh january of, of 2021 i believe which was over and way over and above what anybody expected and when everything was moving smoothly across lines all of a sudden this sort of power grab cash grab is thrown in tim powers is with us tim are you saying that the liberals just made a goof in their attempt to uh really do the best they could they just overstepped their boundaries and granted themselves uh majority status party status over and above their minority i mean is this crafty politics or are they just completely out of touch with canadians here <laughs> Well, can you hear me from my COVID bunker now, Scott? Is this better? You're perfect. You sound beautiful, buddy. All right. Well, that's probably because I'm standing next to a painting of rugby, which always gives me calm. So, uh, <laughs> I, look, I, I don't know what they did, but it was a mistake to come forward with that first draft. Um, they tried to push the blame back on the opposition parties. But uh, as I said before, uh, before the, the bunker uh, cut me off here, they, they all, all the political parties needed to go where they went in the end. I think the lesson for the liberals in this, though, has to be, look, yes, everybody wants to work together in this national emergency. But given the dollars and given the responsibilities that you have now to save lives and help Canadians, there has to be a system of checks and balances. And that was also carved out uh, as a consequence of the negotiations last night. Uh, surprised they would have tried this within a minority setting, minority government setting. Yeah, old habits are hard to break. Again, you know, they're saying they made a mistake. They were trying to rush, the rushing through it. That mistakes are going to be made. They they may get a pass on all of that because I don't think anybody's interested in a big political debate. They may have thought that the opposition would have been wouldn't have wanted to put up too much resistance. Um, in the end, the opposition all said, anyway, look, we're, we're going to support this $82 billion thing. But what they're doing is actually not, un in terms of the checks and balances, Scott, is not unlike what minority parliaments did to Stephen Harper when uh, he was the prime minister during part of the Afghanistan war. They now have a committee yeah. that is going to report to parliament and bring the par uh, uh, that will, sorry, hold the finance minister to account that and that committee will report to parliament so there are some established practices here how you can operate in unusual circumstances the liberals probably would have been better to look at those before they got into this particular place
Uh, last question on this uh, angle. Um, when I was watching a newscast last night on this, it was very much painted as if the Conservatives were holding this up. Uh, n- none of the opposition parties were happy with this. I heard the Bloc speak out against it and the NT- NDP. Is that accurate? Uh, I think the Bloc were a bit more tolerant, but certainly initially none of the three parties were happy with the first bill. Uh, I think Mr. Blanchet, uh, the, the Bloc leader, came out first and said, let's just get it done. Um, but the NDP were, were resistant as well. Look, I was being told all day anyway by senior conservatives that there would be a deal. Their problem was with process. But as one of them put it to me, he was slightly off. This will be done by the time Jeopardy comes on television. And I believe that's 730 Eastern. So it was a few hours after that. Uh, well, they were all playing a bit of Jeopardy with the uh, uh, with the emergency funds. I mean, the interesting bit of this, Scott, is thanks be to God, there was no accident because had the, the four parties and the independents screwed that up, um, Parliament would have fallen. We could be in an election. Can you imagine that on top of mm. all of this right now? Uh, let's elaborate more on that. How is this affecting day-to-day politics, specifically conservatives uh, who are looking for a new leader in the process of that campaign? How does it change their plans moving forward? Some are saying, let's do this now. Some are saying, let's postpone it. Uh, if you're in opposition and you're picking a new leader, what do you do? Well, look, I think you you got to have your ear to the ground here. And I think even conservatives themselves while they do want to defeat Justin Trudeau eventually, and many of them uh, want to see Andrew Scheer gone, are starting to say, as Aaron O'Toole and Marilyn Gladue and Derek Sloan uh, have said, you know what, uh, let's look to delay this. It's a tough balance. On the other hand, there are some who say, look, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole, the two front runners, have experience in cabinet. In the case of McKay, he was around in the financial crisis. Maybe you should put him in now. All of that to say, I, I think they should delay it um, because they have a whole membership in the Conservative Party who likes process, who wants to see a proper leadership race. Um, that might be the best course of action. They only need, look, Scott, in Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, I always used to like to invoke my province. They are having yeah. a, a leadership race there on the liberal side to replace Dwight Ball. Arguably, whoever, well, not arguably, whoever wins that would be the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador in an immediate decision-making position. And they have delayed that leadership race because they recognize the public doesn't have a lot of tolerance for broader politics right now. And not only that, why would Peter McKay want to jump into this early other than to defeat the government? And as you mentioned, this is not the time for that. Why not just let Andrew Scheer deal with this, whatever bumps and bruises he gets, and then move on? Yeah, uh, that, that's certainly uh, one one way of looking at it. I, I, I Look, again, I think some of this is just internecine politics. And one of the challenges they're having, I think, though I have not had this confirmed, is signing up members and that deadline comes uh, on the 21st of april so those who are a little farther behind mr mckay are obviously looking for a delay in that regard but also if you delay it scott you can restart it when there's some form of new normal whatever the hell that will be likely in the end of summer late fall and you can again highlight why you might want to vote for the conservatives why this leadership race matters You'll have none of that with this happening now. And you also may delegitimize a new leader. 
uh, because he or she, if they're elected under these circumstances, people are going to say, well, did enough people vote? Uh, you know, was this rushed? So yeah. you, you want to be careful with all of that. And the last point I'd make, sorry to ramble, but let's use it while the phone line is working. Um, you know, there are three <laughs> or four of these candidates who said, I'm going to put forward a confidence motion if I become leader of the party, and I'm going to put that forward first opportunity in the fall. Love to see them do that now. Got to say, that's not going to happen. You could use the crisis to get rid of that silly, um, silly particular tactic that many of them threatened to invoke. I agree with that. Uh, how long could this go before, how long can you delay something like this? Well, I, look, it's entirely up to the party. Um, don't forget, right? We've talked about this before. They have a policy convention scheduled for Quebec City in November. If, you know, data, and there's so much out there is to believe, but let's, let's just use the practical knowledge that we have now. So in China, South Korea, uh, Singapore, it was about three months um, from, you know, the beginning of it until some sort of normal. So let's say we get a normal in July or some sort of normal in July and August. Why couldn't you just turn that November policy convention into that leadership convention, do the two together uh, and buy yourself some time? And if you need more time to take it in 2021 because we should be paying attention to the pandemic, then you can do that, too. Uh, last question, uh, considering the times that we're in, how should opposition politicians present themselves? What, no matter what level of government you're at, whether it's provincial or federal or what party or what have you, how should, if you're in the opposition, how do you tackle this? How do you keep government uh, uh, on the right path and yet not bring the politics into it to the point where people are, oh, here we go again? Yeah, you have to be respectful and you have to hit the right tone. Um, I, I think you want to convey, as, as most of them are, that, look, we're all on, in this together and we need to get through this together and we support the bigger measures together. And I think even through all of that yesterday, that was evident. I think you can't be afraid to ask questions, but you have to and you must ask questions about how money is being spent and how accountability is being meted out. But I think you have to keep the hyperbole out of it as best you can. It's almost as if you're the teacher uh, examining a student and you want to take that approach. Well, you got this wrong. Here's why. Or I think this is off base. Here's why, as opposed to saying you're a scoundrel and you're dastardly and you're a rotten liberal or you're a terrible tiny Tory. That's the kind of approach I think you have to have mature, measured, respectful, but still be unafraid to ask tough questions. Canadians will want that, too. What, is, what are the biggest challenge for leaders the longer this goes? What are the biggest challenges for those that lead the longer this drags out? Um, well, I, I guess one and reference point we could look at, and again, this is an exceptional circumstance, but you look at um, uh, 2001 and those who were leaders during the uh the 9-11 attacks and they started very well rallied the countries together uh you know bush and blair in particular i'm thinking of uh jean Chrétien wisely stayed out of the war they built their brand they built their leadership they built their recognition uh, positive recognition numbers around all of that by the time they had left office or stayed in power too long uh, the, the narratives had all turned against them because the information they provided, the engagement they provided, all uh, blew up 
uh, in their face and there were out and out lies, as we know. Um, I think there's some similar risks here. I think, you know, Trudeau so far, Doug Ford so far, Legault, most of the premiers that I've seen are all doing a very good job. They're trying to be factual. They're trying to be informative. But if we unfortunately have mass deaths, if we have, you know, uh, people who are un- unable to get into hospitals and get public services, they're going to look at these same leaders and say, hey, you said you had my back, which I believe is the prime minister's phrase and the phrase of some of the premiers. If they don't have the backs of Canadians and the way in which Canadians view them or believe they should, they're going to be in trouble. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman at Summa Strategies. Tim, thanks so much for the time. You and your family take care. Hope all is well. You too, Scott. Take care. Bye. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.